do me a favor and uh, turn over to Psalm 126 as we continue to move through the Song of Ascents. Song of Ascents start in around 120 or so and go through around 134, 135. Uh, and what a blessing. I mean, you know in the Old Testament that the families of God, uh, the people of God, were required to come back to Jerusalem three times a year for three festivals. You know this. And as they were going, no matter what direction they were coming from, they were ascending to Jerusalem because Jerusalem's on a hill. And so a song of ascent is as we're walking and traveling together as families. That's important for tonight. They would be worshiping together as families going up to the mountain. And they would be singing these songs, these song of ascents. Isn't that great? Just even just thinking about that. You want to have a strong, solid family. Yes, we all do. Well, gather around the word and the Lord and fellowship and praise and row in the same direction. And that's what is, uh, is happening here. Now, you remember, don't you? Jesus and his family did this. In fact, we're not told much about Jesus' teen years except for one story. They went up for the festival, and afterwards, as they were caravanning back, they got some ways away from Jerusalem, and mom and dad looked around and said, where's our son? And they rushed back into Jerusalem, and they found him in the temple teaching, and they were amazed at the authority with which he taught. And Jesus said, don't you know that I would be about my father's business? So his family participated in these psalms and songs. How about that one? And so you're going to read that tonight uh, as we start in Psalm 126. Here it is. Uh, it actually has a really famous verse in here that we all like to, to quote. And so we'll read this. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, uh, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are glad. Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. And here's the famous verse. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with them. Well, this now, uh, a song of ascent as they move up to Jerusalem for the festival, and, uh, or a festival. And you know from the history of Israel that because of their rebellion and their um, uh, sin in following and chasing after idols and not obeying the Lord, so chasing after someone or something else and disobeying the Lord, they were put in captivity. In fact, the Lord used an enemy of Israel or enemies of Israel, Assyria and Babylon, to take them into captivity. 
And, you know, the famous one is the Babylonian captivity and 70 years in captivity. Can you imagine if your heart had been longing to go back home, how you felt as you were walking towards the city and all those many miles, hundreds and hundreds of miles, and maybe you'd heard about this wonderful city and you'd known about it and learned about it from your family who was in captivity, but never had seen it, maybe. Or maybe you had seen it and you were older. And you're being brought back to Zion or to Jerusalem from captivity where you were being uh, disciplined. And we were like those who dream. It was like a dream. It was something that they had prayed about and thought about and wondered about and wondered if the Lord would ever actually really bring them back into the place that he had had or that he'd had for them. It was like a dream. And our mouths were filled with laughter. I mean, they were glad and happy and joyful. Now, folks, in our situation as sitting here on this side of the cross, the other side of the cross. We were in captivity. I mean, we were enemies of God. We were at enmity with God. We were part of a kingdom of darkness. We were in bondage to sin and couldn't free ourselves, as one of the creeds goes, or one of the, yeah, anyway, uh, worship uh, lines goes. Uh, we, we couldn't free ourselves. I mean, we were in bondage to sin, and nothing we could do could get us out. And yet, the Lord somehow called us. He called us, and we recognized that we, our greatest and most uh, important need was to be forgiven of our sins so that we could come back into relationship with the Lord. And when that happens, if that's the only thing that ever happened to us, in the Christian life. It's a cause to be glad and to be joyful. Now I understand things happen and we sorrow over them, yes, but even as we sorrow, we could be joyful. That steady, anchored heart that doesn't go up and down like a yo-yo with circumstances. No, we have a hope, a settled hope of a coming good because we are a, a child of the king, that our mouths would be filled with laughter or joy or gladness or blessedness or happiness, however you want to say it. And when we come into that place of knowing that our sins have been forgiven and we've been transferred into the kingdom of the son, or yeah, of the son of his love, into that kingdom, the, son, uh, the son's kingdom, that he reigns in our lives and that he's taken care of our past and he's uh, here now in our present and our future is already determined in a sense that we'll be with him and rule and reign with him, then our mouths just fill up with laughter and how could we do anything but sing? When we set our minds on things above, that's when we laugh and joy and sing. But when we set our minds on the things of this world, it's when we become weighed down 
and distraught and go, you know, into melancholy. Our mouths are filled with laughter. Our tongues are filled with singing. He gives us a new song, and he gave them a new song as they came back from their captivity. And then they said among the nations, you understand, when you're glad in a world that's sad, when your heart is settled and you're not anxious, no, I mean, you're concerned about things. Yes, of course, we're human. But when you have a settled expectation, hoping in the Lord, and you navigate life in that way, when things are going you know, awry and there's the pressure cooker and you're at work or you're at whatever in, in, in family, and, but people still see that you're glad and joyful. It doesn't mean you're happy and clicking your heels at the situation, but they see something's different. What is going on here? That has a big impact on people. The Lord has done great things. They said among the nation, wow, that person's Lord or those people's Lord has done great things. They've brought them back from captivity or he's brought them back from captivity. That would be amazing to the rest of the uh, inhabitants of the land. And that's what people see when they see you in the workplace, in your extracurricular activities, all the different places. They, they see people where, watch, the Lord has done great things in their life, your life. It's not that you're a nice person. Oh, she's such a nice person. Oh, she's just such a nice, or he's such a nice guy. The goal is, is that the Lord gets the glory when you're singing and you're glad and you're happy and you're settled and you're, you have vision and strength when there shouldn't be vision or strength or peace. But they say among the nations, wow, the Lord has done great things for that person. We can tell. The Lord has done great things for us. Watch this. And we are glad. Again, a confident joy in all that the Lord has done and will do and is doing. Who here is a worrier? Raise your hand. Oh, just one. Yeah, you're you're honest. <laughs> Double hands. <laughs> no, and I think lots of us can be that way. Uh, but here, wow, what a picture to be glad to set our minds on things above in the midst of that. Well, bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Now, this is if you've been to Israel, this is fascinating because it happens every year. And in March, even when we go, sometimes we see on the news. In the north of Israel, in Galilee and everything, it looks a lot like Pennsylvania. I mean, it's green and plush. Not exactly like Pennsylvania, but sort of in some places. But then as you move uh, down in Israel, you get to the place that you think of, the Judean desert. And the Judean desert has all these things called wadis, W-A-D-I. And what happens is when it rains in the north, in those higher up elevations, the water starts to come down to the south. And sometimes in the spring rains, especially, or the fall rains, when there's a lot of them, these wadis fill up quickly. And almost every year, at least our guide says, somebody gets trapped in them and dies. I mean, they're these little channels like streams and they 
they flood really quickly. And that's sort of what the psalmist is saying right here, is bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. I mean, you're going to fill us up. You're going to uh, bring plenty uh, as we come back from what we've been captivated by. And in their case, it was an enemy. In our case, it's sin and death. And we're transferred to freedom and life. And Lord, the picture there is it's flooding into your soul. Isn't that wonderful? So those who sow in tears, you ever heard this one? Shall reap in joy. Now, what he's saying here is that great joy is often preceded by tears and sorrow and praying and concern. And uh, I have a quote here. I think I have a quote here. Yes, she gave me the thumbs up. Uh, in verse 5, I have a quote here by F.B. Meyer. Maybe. Did I have a quote from F.B. Meyer? Okay, she's, she's working on it. Well, let me read it to you. There we go. Oh, look at that. Looks good, too. F.B. Meyer noted that some farmers soak or steep their seeds before sowing them and then applied the idea, F.B. Meyer did, it's well when Christian workers steep their lessons and addresses with their tears, or excuse me, with their prayers and tears. It's not enough to sow. We may do that lavishly and constantly, but we must add passion, emotion, tender pity, strong cryings, and tears. Isn't that fascinating? And I'm thinking about that as I uh, read through this. Yeah, we must add. All right. Uh, I'm thinking about that as we read through this. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. I don't know about you folks, but sometimes when I pray about something, my prayer is sort of like, Lord, please do it. Get, get it done by next Friday, would you please? I'm really busy and I'm running to work right now. And thank you for listening to me. Bye. And that's not what this is sort of thinking about or talking about. There's something that the Lord does or is involved in is when our hearts are broken, when our hearts are um, concerned, when our hearts are touched by something and we bring it to him in prayer. And in here, uh, uh, he makes it seem like uh, a, a farmer when we sow concern and passion and uh, uh, a helplessness and a humility in prayer that shows itself maybe even in tears, there's going to come a time where we shall reap in joy like a farmer will. And you know that. I mean, farmers sometimes as they sow and they think about the dust and no rain can almost break down and cry because they're thinking about their families and how... They'll feed them and the, all of that. But, but as we do it, as we steep and soak the seeds before sowing them with concern and prayer, we shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping. In other words, bearing seed for sowing shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. He's going to bring in the harvest. And so... Uh, there's this thing here that the Lord, I think, is talking about in, in the Song of Ascent. 
And the song of ascent, again, let me remind us, is as we walk up as a family, I want you to catch that. As we come up as a family, like Jesus and his family, singing these things, they would understand and know and bring to their kids the things that are heavy upon our hearts. Let's pray about those. Let's all row in the same direction about that. Or, or something's going on in our family that we, we need or must have, and we're going to bring it before the Lord, not like the prayer that I prayed, but invite the Lord, as Hallisby would say, into our helplessness. And so he could shine forth and steep those prayers in tears. You're going to bring a harvest. That's interesting. So you teach then, and you transfer on to your family, to your wife, to your husband's, uh, to your to your kids or whoever it is it's in your family, your grandchildren, whoever, as you move forth in that caravan, they know and understand that we're not just playing when we come into a relationship with the Lord. Are you catching that? This isn't something that we just do with smiley faces. It's not a club. This is us relying upon the living Christ who died and rose again and sent his helper, the Holy Spirit, into our lives to navigate this Christian life that he calls us to, which is to lay our lives down so that we'll find life, to serve and to love. And that takes a concern, and Lord, give us that concern. And you, you, you um, uh, transfer that on, or at least you model that, for your children and for the people in your family. Isn't that amazing? And as we do that, look, you move into Psalm 127. Psalm 127, a song of ascent of Solomon. Now, we all know who Solomon is. It's David's son. And think of the things that Solomon had to deal with, building things and temples and managing a pretty big family. Now that's funny, because he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And also, uh, all of that stuff. And so some people believe that this was written by Solomon. Other people believe that David wrote it about Solomon. But whatever, it's again a song of ascent. You would be singing as a family and with your friends and the people in your hometown as you moved up to Jerusalem. Unless the Lord builds the house... They labor in vain who build it. Now, I want you to see something here. There's nothing wrong with building a house for yourself, but there can be something wrong with building a house for yourself. You get it? And so what is he talking about there? I mean, building the house, like physically, maybe, but what he's really, I think, talking about here is the family. The family. Now, Solomon, yes, he had to build a house, and the reason I think he's talking about the family is, is because the rest of the psalm talks about family life. So it could be that he's talking about building the temple and the house and all that sort of thing, and that, that might be it. So it could apply, look at this, to work. This hits workaholics right between the eyes. Those, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. 
I mean, you could work and be a workaholic and build and build and build and build. And you could be a success humanly. But if you weren't trusting the Lord, look what the Lord says. You build it in vain. That means you could be a millionaire, a gazillionaire. You could have a 60-room palace or whatever. And you could be the poorest person on earth. You've built it in vain. It's nothing. It's like a mirage. It has no eternal value. And the same thing with your family. And as you build your house, you might send them to the greatest schools and get them the greatest education. You have the most fun with them and do all the activities. But if you're not depending and looking to the Lord, you're building a family in vain. And that's a hard one sometimes to swallow. But it's true. Unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. These are important jobs. People who build houses or build things, who guard the city, who watch. By the way, time out. We should do this at the men's conference. I mean, come on, guys. What are we called to do? I mean, guys, we're called to participate and lead in uh, building and supplying and helping uh, supply for the family. And we're called to protect and guide in that way the family. And here, if we're doing it without the Lord, if we're just going through the motions, we might even have all the material things or whatever. But you've done it in vain. And I've done it in vain. The watchman can do it by even when they stay awake and be in vain. It could be nothing. It's vain for you to rise up early. It's vain for you to sit up late. Hard work is good. We know that from Proverbs 6. Hard work is a good thing. But if you're working in a way that dishonors the Lord and it's not worship, it's in vain. That's what they're saying. It's vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late. And it's, well, it's vain to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives beloved sleep. What's that mean? See, when you're a mom or a dad or you're a grandpa or grandma or your friend or whatever, and you're building relationships and you're building your little thing without the Lord, you're always going to sit up and worry. Is little Johnny doing okay? Is little Johnny going to turn out all right? Is Gertrude going to make prom queen or whatever you're worrying about? And it, at night you might just sit up and you're going to eat the bread of sorrows, you see. But for those who trust in the Lord, what you do is you give your household, your work, your family, you give them unto the Lord as you devote your life to the Lord. And when you do that, you give it over to the Lord and then you say, Lord, it's in your hands. And you go to sleep. Now, I know that's easier said than done. But that's what he's saying here. He's saying you could do it my way or you can do it the other way. 
And if you do it the other way, you're always going to be chewing on and being filled up with sorrow. Because the Lord's way is the way of eternity and love and peace, and it's of lasting value. For so he gives his beloved sleep. You're going to be anxious if you're not trusting God in your work, in your family, in your playtime, in your leisure time, whatever it is. You're going to be anxious. And I think right here in Psalm 127, we have a lot of reasons why people are running around now in acute anxiety. Well, he goes on and he says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. And I just want to note... <laughs> Children aren't a bother. We goof around sometimes, but maybe we shouldn't. No child is a bother. And they're not there to be seen and not heard, as the old saying goes. They're valued, and they're valuable, and they bring a heritage. And the heritage comes straight from the Lord. Children are a heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is a reward. Uh, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Now think about arrows. Arrows are designed to hit a little target from a long way away, but they have to be precise and if you've ever made arrows, which I haven't, you can make all kinds of different types of arrows. You can have different points on the end. and You can have different, what are the things called? Huh? Fletching? Hmm, I learned something. There's different fletching on an arrow and probably different composite of what the arrow could be, which is interesting, which means you have to put the arrow together so that it'll fly straight. And sometimes you have different material. And isn't that so true? As you look at your children, you sometimes go and scratch your head and say, did those four come from the same mom and dad? Because they're different. Aren't they different? But that's okay. That's the way the Lord used them or made them. And so you and I and we as parents are charged with learning about that and helping them fly straight to be put into the bow and to have a purpose in life. And to go straight and far and strong. Whatever their makeup is. Whatever their design. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior. See, children and kids, as they grow, look, the Lord is the ultimate warrior. <laughs> and what you're doing is you're designing these kids, it's really not you, but you're designing these kids not for fun, not for blah, blah, blah. You're designing them to be put in the hands of the warrior, the Lord, so that they'll fly straight and true and hit the mark for which God has called them. Isn't that beautiful? That's what we're doing. We're not running down to the office till 11 o'clock at night because you're so important or I'm so important that we got to get everything done so that, you know, Billy or Bob, uh, Bobby have asked us to come to the 
to the game, but no, we're so important, we have to go to the office. Now just, come on. What is our calling? To make arrows and put them in the hand of the warrior, Jesus, so that they can be used. They're like arrows in the hand of the warrior. So are the children of one's youth, and happy is the man or woman who has the quiver full of them. Now, that is true. By the way, folks, I just want you to know something. In Jewish culture, marriage was of utmost importance. And so marriage and having children was, you know, that was the thing. But when you get to the New Testament, of course, marriage is honored and built up, but you're not lesser if you're single, by the way. Paul says, praise the Lord if you are single. You almost have it better. You have it better. You can pray and think about and serve the Lord with no baggage. Not that anyone's baggage. But isn't that what Paul is saying? Nothing will weigh you down. So when you read through this, if you're sitting here and you're single, you shouldn't feel bad. If you're married, this is what it looks like. But we know if you're single, you are valued and important and you're not lesser. In fact, Paul might say you have an advantage. Well, anyway, it says they shout, look at this, happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed. Who's they? The kids, the young people. Why? But they'll speak with their enemies in the gate. What is that referring to? That means a lot of things. The gate of the city was the important part of the city. They would have walls around their city, and there's gates. And what would happen was the big important people would come down and sit in the gates and do transactions and do business. But also, that's where the judicial system would gather. We actually see, when you go to Israel, you see some of these gates. It's fascinating. And they would uh, uh, decide their cases down there. And what this is saying is, when you fashion that arrow, that child, they're going to do important things. They won't be scared because they have the Lord. They can go into the city gate and feel comfortable. That's what it's saying. You have brought them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord so that they're to do valuable and eternal things. That's what this is telling you. Isn't that great? And so we know whatever the Lord has called us to do, whether he's called you or your children to be a doctor or an engineer or anything else, or maybe not. Maybe he's called you to be uh, something different than that. Maybe he's called you to be, uh, I don't know, uh, a carpenter or a pipe fitter or, or whatever. We know that that is worship too. It's all important in the Lord's economy because how else will people hear unless he sends Christians into those places? So what I'm saying is, your child, my child, our children, they don't just have to be pastors and missionaries to be serving the Lord. In fact, the Lord says if you raise them right, I shouldn't have said it that way, but if you raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, they can go out in society, and maybe that's what God's called them for, to 
would make a difference in the city gate. I love it. And so Psalm 128 goes hand in glove right here with Psalm 127, another song of ascent. Blessed is everyone, everyone who fears the Lord. Now I want you to seize that. It's not if you're married. Everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways, you're blessed. You're happy. You're joyful. You're settled in your heart. You're content. You're strong, but you're only strong because of the Lord, because you're humble and you recognize that you're a sinner saved by grace. So you, you have a settledness to you. You have a hope. You have an anchor. You're blessed because you fear the Lord. And what does it mean to fear the Lord? You recognize that without Christ, our end is eternal separation from God. It's a fearful thing to be in the hands of God, right? It's a tough thing. And we know that judgment should have come against us, but Jesus stepped in and we have this reverential respect and awe for God and what Christ has done and sending the Holy Spirit into our hearts and we fear him and that plays out in our life like this. We say, like Romans says, oh, when we recognize that and we've given ourselves to the Lord or the Lord has come into our lives and saved us, we give our whole lives back to the Lord. That's fearing the Lord. That means we take our families to worship. That means we uh, serve other people and we love other people and we do things for other people because the Lord has so loved us. And so we pour out our lives for others. That's fearing the Lord. And we worship the Lord and we praise the Lord and we raise our hands in abandon and raise our hearts because we fear the Lord and we walk in his ways. We don't just intellectually know stuff. When we get out into the world and the world or the Lord calls us to walk it out, we do that, we obey, but we obey because of his strength and resource. In other words, our life is a life of obedience. That's what this is saying. And when you eat the labor of your hands, you're going to be happy and it's going to be well with you. And your wife shall be like a fruitful vine. In the very heart of your house, that's where the wife is to be. I don't mean, listen, this is not some misogynistic thing. I'm saying the wife in a nurturing way is just that the very core of your house. And she's a vine, and I want you to see this. A vine is not a staple. It wasn't a staple of Israel. A vine was something that made wine, so it add beauty and flavor to the, to the meal or to your life. And what this psalmist is saying is that's the way your wife will be, as you and her walk in his ways, and you fear the Lord together, and you work hard. And when you work hard, the work is worship. You'll be happy and it shall be well with you and your wife will be or shall be like a fruitful vine. Make things beautiful in the very heart of your house. And your children will be like olive plants. And again, an olive plant was not a staple. It was a, it was a, uh, uh, well, not a staple. It was like wine and it took long to, to grow. And then to have that oil was just something that just added to the meal. In other words, again, children aren't just some sort of nuisance or something. They add to life, and they're 
lovely, and your children shall, or like olive plants, and they'll be all around your table. There'll be community and happiness in your house. Look, you don't have to fill up your whole time with activity. You know what your kids want? You. There can be times where you just are around the table with your child and your wife and you're laughing and you're talking about their life and you're sharing and you're loving and you're spending time together and you're not rushing and you're communing and you're fellowshipping. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed. <laughs> Repeat sort of verse 1, who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you out of Zion, and may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Yes, may you see your children's children. Did you catch that? They've gone now from having a family to have, or, you know, being married to having children, and now the blessing of uh, empty nesters, I guess. But anyway, grandparents. It would be a blessing to see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. I want you to catch this. You ready? God creates healthy communities through healthy families. He creates healthy societies, peace be upon Israel, through healthy families. God chose to raise godly children through families. Now, the Lord can do anything, and he saved people who don't come from the perfect family, of course, and he brings them up. But the plan is to bring up children with a mom and a dad who love each other and who love the kids and want to be around the kids and want to share the kids and want to uh, spend time with the kids and want to assemble around the table and share the things of the Lord with them, not just Superficial stuff. This is a deeply impactful uh, portion of the Song of Ascents. Because can, can you imagine, as you're walking with your family and your community, and you're hearing these things, festival after festival after festival. And they didn't have cars, of course. They would walk together. And it would be a time, a slow time, and a time of lingering and loving and laughing and sharing and encouraging. You ever walked a long way with somebody? One person gets tired, one doesn't, and you don't leave them behind. You help them along or, or, or whatever. And that's what was happening here. So as we go one more, we get to Psalm 129. Another song of ascent, and this one's about being afflicted, yet being confident in God's victories. And here it goes. Many a time they have afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, many a time they have afflicted me from my youth. Hmm. <laughs> in other words, you know the story of Israel. Israel is a survivor. <laughs> As some uh, commentators have said, if you want to... Uh, who, who did they ask? I'm going blank. I'll have to look it up. They asked one very famous uh, Christian pastor or a missionary, uh, why do you believe God is real? And he said one word, Israel. <laughs> and 
And it's so true. I mean, Israel has been afflicted over and over again, and they've survived, yet they have not prevailed against me. They, the enemies haven't. And the plowers plowed on my back. They made their furrows long. And the picture is as long stripings on the back of somebody. I mean, you know, as they're furrowing, as they're cultivating the ground with their plows and that sort of thing. So Israel's been a survivor. In verse 4, the Lord is righteous. He has cut in pieces the cords of the wicked. Let all those who hate Zion be put to shame and turned back. Let them be as the grass on the housetop, short-lived, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand. Nor he who binds his sheaves, his arms, neither let those who pass by them say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. In other words, what he's saying here is don't pray these great prayers for those who are doing these things. This is sort of getting into or back to an imprecatory way to pray, which is a psalm that prays God's judgment upon people. And that sort of enters in in this psalm. One more, Psalm 130, a song of ascent. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Anybody ever had to do that? Been in the depths and had to cry out? Yeah, you've been in the depths and you've had to cry out. This is a personal testimony as they're walking up to Jerusalem of God bringing somebody out of the depths. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive. That's a very important verse there because he double says it or he says it twice. He's saying, please, Lord. I'm so low, I need to be heard because I need things. I need supply to the voice of my supplication. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? In other words, this person, whoever wrote this, had a great sense of their own sin and, and their nature. Lord, who could stand if you counted things against me? I couldn't even be heard by you. But there is forgiveness with you. There is forgiveness with you. Now, I might trick Autumn back there because I gave her a couple others. But this is Psalm 130. There is forgiveness with you. Uh, Brad's favorite pastor, James Montgomery Boyce, he reminds me every time he's from Pittsburgh. And he served in Philadelphia for a long time at a very famous church. Anyway, Boyce said this, you might not find forgiveness with other people. Yeah, you might not find forgiveness with other people. Your husband or your wife may not forgive you if you've wronged him or her. Your children may not forgive you. Your coworkers may not forgive you. You may not even be able to forgive yourself. There is one who will, and that one is God. Write down where you can see and reflect on it often. Our God is a forgiving God. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. God forgiveness builds in us gratitude and thanksgiving. That's what that verse says, verse 4. Isn't that wonderful? Who here needs forgiven? 
I'm waiting till everybody. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> okay. Uh, I will wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His Word, I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord. I cry out. I want you to notice this. I cry out, and then I wait. That's what the psalmist says. I cry out, and then I wait, which tells you that he is very expectant, and he knows the Lord intimately, and he waits because he knows the Lord and how good he is. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Now, think about that. I want you to see this. If you were one who were waiting like those who watch for the morning, you would get up about, I don't know, when does the sun go? Oh, 6.18. You'd get up around whatever, 5.30 or whatever, and you would sit there at your window. And here's the funny part. You know at 18 after 6, you know the sun's going to come up. And you know it because it happens every time. The sun comes up, the sun goes down. And that's what the psalmist is saying. You can trust the Lord like waiting for the morning to come or the light to come on. Isn't that wonderful? Wow, for the morning to come. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Okay, I lied. One more. Psalm 131, a song of ascents of David. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty, neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. I just want that to linger right there. We're called to do great things for God. I'm convinced of that. We're called to do big things for God. But what we think are big and what he thinks is big might be two different things. But nevertheless, we're called to do big things for God, but our hearts are not to be haughty, nor our eyes lofty. There's, a, there's an ambition of pursuing the Lord and everything he has for you, and that's good. But then there's that ambition that slips over that's not good, where it's haughty and it's about you, and it's not about glorifying the Lord. It can even be good pastoral stuff, but then having them love me instead of the Lord or whatever. Neither do I concern myself with great matters nor with things too profound for me. Sometimes intellectual or mental pursuits becomes expressions of pride. Can I say that again? Sometimes intellectual or mental pursuits become expressions of pride. And we have to certainly watch that. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul. Wow. There's something about choosing and uh, to quiet your soul. Do you have that one, Autumn? All right. Wow, she's the best. Because I, sh I, uh, I know. I, I uh, sprung these on her about five minutes before the service. Anyway, oh, the wonder of quiet contentment with God. He has enjoyed the walk with God in which he stilled or composed himself and quieted, silenced, or found rest his soul. Isn't that beautiful? The wonder of quiet contentment with God. Are you content with God? He can quiet our hearts and help us calm and quiet our soul like a weaned child with his mom. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth 
forever. Here, what I think he's saying is people of God, continue to hope in the Lord, just like as if you're at the window waiting for the morning to start. You know it's coming because he's faithful and good. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do. We come here this morning or this evening and we thank you for these psalms. And uh, we're blessed uh, to read through them. I pray, Lord, that these would be great encouragement to us to raise our families, to encourage other people, to hope in you, to cry out and to wait. We love you, Lord, but we know it's because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.